Welcome to the rooftop. How do you come back when you've been out of the game for two years? I think that's something that all of us are going to have to answer in one form or another over the next few months. How do you come back? You know, I was uh, flying across the country to California not that long ago, and my wife was with me. We were going to give a talk, and every single aspect of the flight seemed like misery to me, (laughs) from reservations and check-in to going through TSA to getting on our aircraft, all of it. The ticketing counter was just swamped with people, inefficient. And normally this is an airline that, I mean, they're on it, you know, for the most part. And I asked, the the, when I got up to the counter, you know, I I decided to put a little bit of my rooftop training into practice. And and, and I I put relationships before transactions. And I could tell the woman uh, behind the counter was having a hell of a day. And I just asked her, I said, looks like it's been quite a day for you. And she said, you just have no idea. And I said, what's going on? You know, like what's, what's happening? It seems like, you know, you guys are really struggling to get back in the game. And she just looked at me and she goes, we've lost our mojo. And, and it's, it's really tough. And that just kind of floored me. And it gave me kind of a metaphorical lens to look through, you know, that, that groove, that flow that we've taken for granted, certainly in this country, certainly in the West, this, this organizational way of just grooving, man, of just getting things done. And yeah, you know, I don't want to be like ultra nostalgic here and take it too far, but let's face it before the pandemic, you know, there was a certain groove, there was a certain flow, there was a certain mojo that the United States, the West had, and just how it navigated its day. And, you know, there were things that we did every day, whether it was in our small business, whether it was in taking our kids to school, whether it was in in going to a restaurant and having a night out with our family, you know, there's a mojo that 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 comes with the the life of abundance that we have built for ourselves. And as I proceeded on this flight, I saw that mojo just absent without leave at every turn. You know, TSA was the same way. Ridiculously inefficient, but more importantly, the TSA associates that were working there were super on edge. I mean, more than normal, you know, and and were were really, really just biting almost in how they treated people. And you you could just tell that there was almost like a nervousness, you know, that was kind of pervasive around that area. And then when you got to the gate area, you know, it was the same thing. People were, were not really sure how to act around each other. <laughs> you know, uh, people were, you know, if you got too close to someone, you got the eyeball as if you were like from a rival tribe, you know, um, and, and, and everybody, you could just, it's palpable. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know how when you walk in a room and you can just feel the tension? I mean, it was like that. And then when we got on the airplane, I mean, forget about it. Like it was, it was just this really, really stiff, rigid uh, environment. And not that flying on planes is ever fun, but you could just, again, hear 
the anxiety, because, you know, humans, we're, we're attuned for this with thousands of years of hardwiring. You could hear the anxiety uh, in the voices of the flight attendants when the pilots came over to make their messages about masks and everything else. I mean, oftentimes it was... It was beyond robotic. It was like tinny. It was like there was no heart in it at all. And again, not that I'm looking for heart and passion from a pilot's speech before the aircraft takes off. But, you know, you notice things like that when they're different, you know. Um, And baggage claims, super inefficient. I mean, it took forever for stuff to come out. And people were, and while they were waiting, people were just kind of lost, you know, almost like in a trance-like state. And. I started looking through this lens at other things. I started to notice it at restaurants, you know, where you would have maybe three people working in the restaurant trying to get everybody seated uh, and customers are getting, you know, more and more testy. Um, The the, the great resignation that's happening across the country right now, where in some studies up to 50% of people are not returning to their jobs. Major corporations are having huge recruiting problems. Even their recruiters are gone. You know, people that I per that I coach at an executive level have told me, Scott, like we we have like twenty five percent turnover, and it's not getting any better. I don't know what to do. You know, our our returns are good, but our people are exhausted, and you know how that's going to end. You know, people are super anxious about returning to the office. Some people already have, and it's no big deal. But others, you know, particularly your larger corporations and your organizations, like they have not gone back to the office or they're doing this hybrid model, and people are in all kinds of different places about it. You know, um, you you see speeding going on anywhere you go. Notice it. Like if you're driving down the interstate or even in the suburbs or in the outlying areas, people are driving like at at rates of speed that are beyond reckless. And I've actually been doing research on this and this is directly proportional to COVID. You know, in a lot of ways, it, 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 law enforcement have seen upticks in this across the country. You know, you see upticks, high upticks in teen depression, adult mental health issues are severely on the rise. And the veteran suicide rates, threateningly high, as well as depression, mental health I mean, let's face it, we have, in many ways, lost our mojo as a society, that flow, that organizational groove of doing things. And you might think, okay, and I've had people actually kind of say this, well, what does it matter? What's the big deal? We survived the pandemic. We we got through this thing. What's the big deal? And I will tell you that, you know, this, this intangible sense of collective flow, this mojo is going to be essential to us moving forward, to us as a society, as small businesses, as families, as individuals, getting back from a mode of surviving to a mode of thriving. And you see, in my assessment, that's what's at play here. Those are the stakes. You know, it's not that if we don't get our mojo back, we won't survive. I think we will, at least for the short term but we won't thrive. And all of us, most of us have come accustomed accustomed to a sense of abundance, a sense of freedom, a sense of pursuit of one's dreams, a sense of agency, autonomy in our environment that we really value. And again, it's almost invisible. It is invisible. We grew up with it in many cases. 
and we've come to expect it. And then for the last two years, we've gone into survival mode. We've, we've had to face a disease that brings on persistent fear in many different ways that has brought on epic change. I mean, my goodness, the, 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 the change and uncertainty that has gone with this pandemic has been off the pale. And then prolonged isolation. You know, humans are meaning-seeking, emotional, social creatures. And so when we are isolated from one another, there is a definite impact with that. You know, studies from the 1917 Spanish flu have shown that there were residual effects from the isolation, the quarantines. And in my conversations with a lot of mental health professionals, to include Ivan Tyrrell, there is a degree of madness that can settle upon us when we are isolated for long periods of time. So you mix all these things together, right? You mix together this persistent fear, this epic uncertainty followed by change, constant change, and then prolonged isolation. And you truly have what David Phillips calls the devil's cocktail. Like you have a mixture of social ingredients that will cause us to lose our mojo. It will cause us to go into a mode of survival. And, you know, that's, that's a real problem. That's a real problem because when we go into survival mode, <clears throat> our sense of the collective is degraded. We're more interested in just getting by, just surviving, just getting through. Excuse me. <clears throat> so what do we do about that? You know, we, how, do we, how do we get it back? Because we don't want to live that way. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live in what I'm seeing around me right now. I don't think that's the standard. I don't want my kids to inherit that kind of world, you know? So how do we get it back as a society? How do we get our mojo back? And how do you, probably more importantly, how do you help others around you get it back? Because, you know, rooftop leadership really is about leaders with a crystal clear vision of a better world that doesn't yet exist and the dynamic ability to inspire others to help you build it. So, how do you inspire others? How do you influence others to go from surviving to thriving? To go from a sense of scarcity to abundance. To go from divisionism to bridging trust. From, to go from this bonding trust that we have to, to bridging trust. To a sense of unity and connection. An upswing, as Robert Putnam talks about. How do we get there? I mean, I'm assuming that you want to get there. I'm assuming that you look around as you heard my description and, you know, you recognize what I'm talking about. Well, I'd like to suggest 10 ways that you can get your mojo back. And in this, I, I also include the mojo of your collective around you, your arena where you live, work, and play, right? Because I know you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you weren't a rooftop leader, you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't very interested in purpose-based human connection to help establish bridging trust, to help increase social capital in your sphere, right? So these 10 things, I believe, and I'm not even kidding you, like I, these are things I'm practicing. These are things I've observed in multiple disciplines <clears throat> from some of the highest performing rooftop leaders I know. And um, here we go. I'm going to step through them. And they are kind of in order, I think. I think these are sequenced <clears throat> in such a way that 
if you'll work on them, they'll really help you get that mojo back and help others get their mojo back. So this could be the mojo for your small business. This could be the mojo for your team as you return to the office. This could be the mojo to help increase your recruiting, reclaim your client base, uh, get your nonprofit back on its feet, or just get your kids, you know, kind of back into the groove or help yourself find your place and get back into the groove. The first one is appreciate the damage that's been done. Appreciate the damage that's been done. You know, it's like if you've ever gone through a hurricane or a really bad storm, you know, uh, there's damage. There, there, there just is. There's residue. And there's nothing that you can do about that. We've ridden out several hurricanes here in Florida at our house. And, you know, you, you button down. You ride that thing out and you hear the wind howling outside and you know, man, when the sun comes up in the morning, that's going to be a mess. And you pray to God you make it through. And and when you do, you walk outside kind of blinking into the sunlight, looking around. And at first, your heart just sinks. You know, your heart just sinks that what you're looking at is such devastation. There's trees down, right? There's Maybe there's power lines down. There's debris everywhere. Maybe the shutters are off your house. There's a lot of residue. But then all of a sudden you look at your, your, your spouse and you look at your kids and you kind of get a smile on your face as you start to move and pick things up and you realize that you're alive. You realize that you're still here. Your, your feet are still on this earth. You, you get a sense of yourself. And as you pick up things and you start to throw things uh, away and you start to clear things away, that residue, your, your pace starts to pick up. Maybe you start to whistle a little bit. Maybe you start to actually see the world with fresh eyes. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here is there has been a storm. There has been residue. And, you know, movement and meaning are inextricably linked as humans. We must move to find meaning. And the movement can be so basic. You know, um, your mojo might be that in all of this, you've lost your workouts. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, um, that you've lost uh, your your rhythm and your regimen and your discipline. It's all right. You know, we're going to talk about that. But the first thing is just to appreciate the damage that's been done, that take that moment to kind of blink looking into the sunlight and just go, damn, <laughs> you know, and not in a self-flagellating, self-defeating kind of way appreciate the damage that's been done. What I mean by that is not like, oh, thank you, God, for this damage. That's not what I mean. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing a term from my friend David Ellis and others who lead the, the way in design thinking. And one of the things that they, and, and the whole thing about design thinking is in when you're dealing with complexity, when you're dealing with problems that are unstructured and it's just impossible to unpack them because they're interrelated and they're so complex, um, Rather than you're never going to understand them, you're not going to understand everything that's happened with COVID. You're not going to understand all the damage that's been done and all of the things that have come along with it. You know, the social division, the distrust, all, you know, the, the racial issues, all of those things that are interwoven and so complex, but you can appreciate them. You know, you can look at them through your lens. And even if it's a limited lens, take a deep breath and just see it for what it is. Right. And appreciate that damage has been done because appreciation, understanding means like you 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 admire the problem. I understand. And you sit around and you you scratch your head and you think about it until, you know, it's analysis paralysis. Appreciation is looking out at the residue in the yard and going, "Okay, I got it. 
this is where we are. This is the residue. Uh, I, I see what it is. I appreciate what's in front of me. And, and it's now time to get to work. Number two, shake off the trance. You know, when you heard my opening story about flying across the country, you heard me talk about the attitudes and behaviors of different people along the way. And one of the things that I've noticed is that people are angrier in many ways. They are more quickly triggered. Many people are afraid. They're afraid of being around other people. They're afraid of contracting the disease. Perhaps they uh, have a higher risk of it. Perhaps they have parents at home who are at high risk or children. Perhaps they lost a loved one. But people are you know, in more of a fear-based state and perhaps even uh, a sadness state than they have been in a long time. Now, remember, we're not just talking about you, right? You might say, well, I'm good, man. I've never been better. I've had people say that to me. Like, I, I was, <laughs> I, I'm an introvert. I've trained my whole life for this. Great. But what about the people around you? What about your teammates? What about your kids? What about your boss, right? What about your client? You know, it's a safe bet. I can tell you that people in your immediate circle have lost their mojo and have been directly affected by this. And you know what? According to Professor James Clawson from Darden University, leadership is the management of energy. So how are you, yours and those around you, how are you going to manage energy to help people get their mojo back? Well, you got to shake off the trance. We are emotional creatures. When we stay in prolonged states of fear uh, and sadness, According to trauma interventionist Mary Millsaps, that goes that gives way to a secondary emotion of anger. And according to human givens expert and psychiatrist Ivan Terrell, anger makes us temporarily stupid. We go into a trance-like state when we're afraid, when we're angry. Why? Because those emotions are primal things that demand action from our body to survive. So the body goes into a trance-like state in order to fight, flee, or freeze, right? Parts of the body shut down, parts of the body go into overdrive. Leadership is the management of energy. So this is a semi-conscious, even unconscious response. And it's really designed at a primal level to deal with the saber-toothed tiger in the bushes, right? Or to grieve over the loss of a friend uh, or a family member and then move on, right? But what's happened is because of this prolonged isolation, this long drawn out event, many people have stayed in fear. Many people have stayed in sadness and it's guaranteed that that's going to give way to a secondary emotion of anger. And if you don't believe me, just look around. Look at how people are treating each other on social media. Look at how the the 24-hour the, the news cycle right, divides us. Look at how people are treating each other in open public forums or over elections. That's not normal. right? We have not been doing that throughout our history. right? We're social creatures. We're actually wired to interact with each other. Yes, there's going to be conflict and division, but not on a sustained basis like this. I would submit to you that there are a lot of us who are getting more easily triggered because of the conditions I just stated, and we are slipping into that trance-like state where we lose our agency. We surrender our autonomy to anger. We surrender our autonomy to fear. We surrender our aut autonomy to leaders who actually understand what they're doing, and they mobilize us against each other for their own limited agenda, playing on your fear, my anger. So we have to shake that off. 
right? If we're going to get our mojo back as a nation, if we're going to get our mojo back as communities, as businesses, we have to recognize that anger and fear make us temporarily stupid. And probably, if you're listening to this, you have gotten sucked into it, right? And perhaps it seems justified. One of the most dangerous things of all, right, is this moral superiority that you see right now that's all over the country. Yeah, I agree with you, Scott, but those people over there, man, they're the ones that don't get it. They don't get it. They need to go, right? That kind of moral superiority, if you're using that in any fashion, you've gotten sucked into the trance. And my suggestion is to shake it off because what it does is it limits your perspective to the size of a soda straw. Your ability for human connection, your ability for broader perspective is reduced to primal survivalism. You look like you don't trust yourself. You look tribal. And like people are going to skirt around you. They're going to avoid you. And they're going to mirror you. Right? So it's not going to put you in a position of relevance. Number three, accept that nobody else is coming. Just accept that nobody else is coming. You know, when the Pineapple Express, Operation Pineapple Express kicked off, um, I was reluctant to get involved with that. And the reason was because I had seen where the government was going with Afghanistan nine years ago. I had seen where the military was going, and I didn't like it. I mean, I'd been selected for a battalion command three times, and I turned it down all three times, the final time with prejudice by the Army. And they told me I had to retire as a lieutenant colonel. And I was ready to because, frankly, I didn't like where things were going. Like I took agency in my own life and I stepped away. So fast forward, you know, nine years later and everything in the country of Afghanistan has fallen apart. Everything that I was afraid was going to happen that I put in my book, Game Changers, that I put in the play last out that was scheduled to be released. It was all coming true. And I was like, man, I don't want to get involved in this crap again. I don't want to get involved in this. But my friend Nizam, who was still over there and still stuck, you know, was going to get executed. And it was about recognizing that, you know what, the government's not coming. The president's not coming. The secretary of state's not coming. And by the way, before you make any assumptions on the political front, trust me, all four administrations own this thing. Every single one of them made catastrophic strategic blunders uh, that got us to this position. I invite you to read Game Changers and uh, broaden your mind on that. But Biden at the time you know, was the commander in chief. And in my assessment, he was not going to take action to help my friend Nizam for sure. And the other commandos and Afghan special forces and friends I had over there, uh, he was not going to give the secretary of, uh, of state or the secretary of defense, the, the authority they needed to do it. So it was going to fall either, either those people were going to be executed or, or somebody else was going to have to do it because nobody else is coming. My friend Bo Eason coined that term, and I love it, and I think it is so appropriate. And I think that once I figured out, okay, nobody else is coming, and I accepted that, and I reached out to my friends who were veterans who understood the environment and reporter James Meek, um, we were able to take some agency to exercise agency in our arena. Because as Sean Coyne, Stephen Pressfield's editor, says in his brilliant lecture on complexity, he says, you know, Humans are agents in their arena, and they exercise agency. In other, words, in other words, they have autonomy. They have free will, and it's what makes us uniquely human. But we've come to rely on these leaders, frankly, these formal leaders who are amateurs. They are mouth breathers, both parties, 
right, at corporate levels. Like we have invested our own agency, our own autonomy in leaders who are divisionist, who promote the churn, who actually pit us against each other, right, who have a very limited agenda. They don't unify. They don't have a bridging vision. We've given our agency away to those leaders, and then we look to them to save us, to do something for us, to make our life better. Since when did a politician ever make your life better in recent memory, like truly better, right? Or a corporate leader or a person in the media or someone in Hollywood, people who we look to with this formal mantle of leadership, Right? And I'm not saying we don't need leaders in those positions. I'm saying, I'm saying they're in the wrong seat. They should not have the microphone. They're not worthy of us giving our agency to them. So I had to realize nobody else is coming. It's just me. It's just Nizam. It's just Mullah Mike. We're going to have to do this ourselves. And once I accepted that, you know what? And realized that I was going to have to lead myself first. I was going to have to get over my reluctance. I was going to have to get over my pity party. I was going to have to shake off, you know, nine years of resentment towards the government and the war in Afghanistan and just do the next right thing. And I think that's true for all of us. I think as you're sitting here listening to this right now is, you know, you're going to have to lead yourself first. No one else is going to follow you if you don't look like you trust yourself. And the first piece of it is just to recognize nobody else is coming. No one's going to come riding over the hill on horseback to save the day. And in fact, it's really how we're designed as humans to exercise agency in our own life. And when you realize that it's contagious, you know, people start to take heart. People start to shake this, you know, shake the trance off. The scales start to fall off their eyes. But accepting first that no one is coming is critical. Number four, reclarify your purpose. You know, reclarify your purpose. Humans are the most meaning-seeking creatures on the planet. You and I navigate the world based on the meaning that we assign to what's in front of us. And as Sean Coyne says, without meaning in our life, we slowly die as individuals and organizations. Now think about that for a second. Put that in the context of the Great Resignation. Put that in the context of the talent tsunami. You know, put that in the context of my friend at a Fortune 500 company who's scratching his head going, I don't understand. I don't understand why 25% of my people have left. Or another person who I, I coach at an executive level, she's like, I don't understand where our recruiters went. They just walked away. It's all about meaning. It's all about purpose. Reclarification of purpose is going to be essential because I think what's happened in this two-year pandemic for a range of reasons, people have been confronted with meaning in their life. You know, they've sit, they've been sitting at home for months at a time. They've looked at their job. They've looked at the way their job makes makes them feel. They've looked at the way their marriage makes them feel. They've looked at the way being a parent makes them feel. They've looked at maybe what they're not doing, and they've really started to question their purpose. They've started to question their meaning, including you, including me. Right, The context has changed, and context is everything, according to author of The Master and his emissary, Ian McGilchrist. Context is everything, local context, and context changes, and when context changes, we assign different meaning to things. And this is why when I'm talking to businesses and small business owners and, and people leaders, I'm like, hey, you have to reclarify your purpose. You have to dig into the purpose of your people, and frankly, I would not assume that the purpose you had going into this pandemic is the same purpose on the other side. Meaning changes. 
Now, people say, well, you're wise forever. Simon Sinek says you're wise forever. Okay, I got that. But the context changes. And when context changes, so does meaning. We have to assign meaning to our new reality. And I think a lot of what's happening right now is leaders, businesses, organizations, they're trying to apply the same purpose, the same meaning, the same operating parameters to a ridiculously different context. And if leaders don't recognize the significance of meaning, of purpose, you're going to miss it. You're going to, you're going to keep seeing people, you know, go for the exits because all associate engagement scores are tied directly to meaning. They're tied to one's perceived purpose and the purpose of the organization. And is their purpose validated? You know, and so it starts with reclarifying your own purpose. Ask yourself, why do you show up and do what you do? And where does that come from in your life? Just those two questions. Sit down outside somewhere for five minutes and write. Just move the pen and you'll be astounded. I bet you it's changed since before the pandemic. And then start to ask your people that question. Start to ask your kids that question, your spouse, anyone in your life who you value. Ask them that question with pure discovery, pure curiosity. You know, illuminate and amplify and give give emphasis to this concept of why, of meaning. Like, take time as a leader to really dig into that. Why am I doing this? Why are you doing this? You know, open it up. Put emphasis on purpose. Because you, you think, well, I don't have time for that right now. I got cash flow to worry about. You got time to lose people. <laughs> you got time for them to keep walking out the door. You know, and I've seen this in the military. I've seen it in law enforcement. If leaders don't learn to harness the power of purpose and integrate it into their own personal journey, the journey of the people around them and their organization, you are going to go the way of the dodo, right? Extinction is in your future. You cannot survive. You certainly cannot thrive without a deep intrinsic connection to purpose. And your context has changed. So re-clarify your purpose, number four. Number five, reclaim your R4. <laughs> so let me, this is a little of a rooftopian in language. I got to take a swig of coffee before I share this one with you. Is this working for you? Is this, is this helpful? You know, I wonder. I'm sitting in my bedroom recording this right now, and it's actually kind of helping me reconnect to my mojo every time I talk about this. Because I've, I've, I've worked this for so long, I, you know, it's... It's oftentimes that we, you know, the stuff we know we walk away from. So I'm even hearing things for myself. I hope it's serving you. Um, Number five, reclaim your R4. Um, There's an acronym we use in Rooftop that is around the pillar of deep work. One of our pillars is deep work, resilience. And uh, R4 is the, the methodology we use for that. It's the tool. And what it stands for is regimen, ritual, rigor, and recovery. You know, Jocko Willink is absolutely right. Discipline equals freedom. So at the at the apex, if we wanna if we wanna navigate and overcome resistance, the self sabotage that we face every day, get our mojo back, we have to have regimen. We have to have discipline, right? And then we have to have rituals within that regimen. Um, we have to have things that we do every single day for mind, body, and spirit. And there needs to be uh, alignment of those things. And if you want, you can also throw your craft in there as well. You can do rituals that help you get better at your craft. But you need rituals. They're sacred. They're done at a sacred time, sacred place. And you and I both know that um, the pandemic has challenged that, hasn't it? I can't tell you how many people in surveys and rooftop training workshops that I do at a corporate level have said to me, Scott, 
I was working out so well. I was running every day and I just quit. You know, when my kids came home for homeschooling, like I just, I've lost that. And it's, it's like this depression. It's like this sense of defeat. It's like this sense of failure. And I, I get it. I do the same thing. You know, if I, if I put some extra weight on or if I miss my workouts for a prolonged period of time, man, I just beat myself to death. And my wife, Monty, she gets so mad at me. She's like, just go out in the gym and work out. And I have to take, you know, all this, you know, dramatic time to get mad at myself. And, and, you know, I know other people are in that boat too. Um, but we have to have regimen. We have to have rituals and we have to have rigor when we go and do those rituals. It can't be like running on a treadmill, you know, watching Oprah. Like there needs to be rigor. There needs to be intention. Leadership is the management of energy. If you're going to walk for five minutes, be present and walk for five minutes. If you're going to meditate and do diaphragmatic breathing, don't be checking your phone. That's what I mean by rigor. Show up, be intentional, do the ritual as it's, as if it's sacred because it is. And then finally, is recovery. You know, we've got to do more to work on recovery. I see a lot of leaders right now burning out. They're hitting their wall. It's not going to do any good to come through this pandemic and save your organization and then collapse on the ground in a heap with a heart attack or a stroke, right? What are you doing to recover at a micro level? Like, are you taking little breaks during the day, during lunch to go work out or do some diaphragmatic breathing or hell, just go walk for five minutes, you know, set your Zoom call times, you know, instead of 10 o'clock, make it 10.05 so that when that call ends at 10, you go walk for five, right? Micro recoveries, put the phone up at, you know, five or six o'clock at night, knock all the blue screens off. And then macro recoveries, you know, uh, my book agent just took his kids to Disney World and, uh, you know, he put everything up. He, he stepped away and he let everybody know he was doing that and he's recharging. It's huge to schedule those things. So regimen, ritual, uh, rigor and recovery, your R4 are so important. And let me just give you a quick vignette of how that can manifest. Um, you know, the bottom line is if, if you, um, if you do these things when risk is low, you'll be able to cash in on them when risk is high, right? So do you really think this is the last of the pandemic? Do you think this is the last of uh, the market crashing? Do you think this is the last time that you'll have an exodus of employees, right? Or a crisis that we haven't thought up yet? I mean, if anything, we should come out of this thing going, damn, we live in unprecedented times of complexity. And that's my backyard swimming pool now. And chaos is always just around the corner, right? So you as a leader are going to have to navigate and lead your people out of chaos into order. And to do that, you got to get your mojo back every time, right? So um, doing the, the, the R4 when risk is low allows you to leverage it when risk is high. I was recently interviewing one of the guys for the pineapple book that we're writing. He's a diplomat. You'll get to meet him. Um, and this guy is amazing. He's a former special operator, but he was on the ground. He actually was one of the first guys into the Kabul International Airport when everything was falling apart. The airfield was getting overrun. At this time, the troops had not arrived from the U.S. There were not enough troops to secure the airfield. And, um, you know, he was a diplomat and, you know, had to play the role of diplomat, even though he was a former special operator. He had diplomats under his charge that he needed to, you know, keep cool with. And so they put these guys guys, they were in a room uh, at the Kabul International Airport. They were in this room and it was where they had to duck and cover while the airfield was being sieged, you know, being seized. And uh, and and the, and the, and the re- small amount of U.S. troops were trying to push 
uh, the, 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 the different Afghans back that had assaulted the airfield. This, I mean, this was in the first few hours. So he sits down, closes his eyes, crosses his legs, and just starts doing meditation. He starts doing mindfulness work as bullets are zipping all around the place. And because he's a diplomat, he has to play that role. And he just checked in with himself. He just said, I wanted to see what mortal, moral peril, mortal peril looked like from the inside. <laughs> and he did that. He dropped into his breath. But guess what? When he opened his eyes and the all clear came, he was ready to lead. And that's what I mean. We do R4 when risk is low and we leverage it when risk is high. All right. Those are the first five. Uh, this has been an awesome conversation with you. I feel like I'm back with you again, uh, talking about the stuff that really is going to help us get back into the sunlight. Um, we're going to break here. And on our next episode, uh, episode two of, of Your Mojo, uh, we'll come back and we'll hit the remaining five. All right. So thanks for being here. Thanks for being with us on the rooftop. Don't forget, fear is contagious, but so is leadership. I'll see you on the rooftop. Mm-hmm.